Welcome to Hazel's Story, an epic saga podcast. We're here to dive deep into the panels and pages of Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples' comic book masterpiece, unpacking the amazing characters, themes, and weirdness in this grand space opera. I'm Alan. And my name's Abu. Hey, Abu. First episode. Amazing. Excited. First episode. Cannot wait. Starting off with chapters one, two, and three today. And holy crap, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah, we're doing it. It's real. This started off as a very fragile idea a month or two ago, and now it's suddenly a very real thing. So here we are. Literally just a text message of me saying, hey, we should do a podcast about Saga. And you being like, (laughs) we should do a podcast about Saga. And thus, here we are. I don't know about you, Abu, but I have been obsessed with this comic since literally I first heard about it. I've been a big fan of Brian K. Vaughn's comics for many, many years, going back to a lot of his Marvel work and some of the books he did with indie presses, like Ex Machina is a book I like a lot. So when I read in 2011 that he was going to do this epic space opera, I was like, oh man, I have to read this as soon as it comes out. So I started reading Saga from the very first issue as it published in March 2012, Wow. Wow. And in a non-spoiler way, can you share what it felt like in 2012 to read Saga? I just remember like from the first even couple pages being like, what the fuck is this? Like <laughs> I, I like knew Brian K. Vaughn like to challenge formats and like, you know, the stuff that he had done on Marvel, like stayed within the Marvel universe, but took it in new directions. And just like from the very first pages, as we'll talk about in this episode, there's weird stuff, but there's also very familiar sort of themes and tropes for anybody who's into the kind of space science fiction that we've all grown to know and love, your Star Wars, yeah. your Battlestar Galacticas, like there's elements of that, but it's just so so, so, so weird. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So my saga origin story starts quite a few years later. I actually didn't come around to reading saga until pretty late in its life, maybe 2015, 2016. I don't remember exactly. 2011, I was still graduating high school, not to make you feel old, but. (laughs) Thanks, dude. (laughs) I did not know about saga in 2011, but yeah, it was a, It was near the end of college that I maybe heard about Saga. So that would have been around 2015 or 2016. And I loved it from the very start. And like the same things that maybe drew you to it, the weirdness of it all, the gorgeous artwork, the science fiction fantasy world, all of that really sucked me in. And I was not a, truthfully speaking, a comic book reader growing up. And so Saga was one of, the first comics I read when I was dipping my toes into the wonderful world of comic books. So I'm stoked that here we are like talking about Saga now. Yeah, that's was a really common experience too that I heard from a lot of my non-comics friends in around when like Saga started to blow up. Um, I remember the I was dating someone in maybe like 2014 and she saw me reading it and she was like, oh, that's cool. And so I got her the first trade paperback as a gift and she burned through it. First comic book she'd ever read. Yeah. And immediately was like, oh my God, I need the rest of these trade paperbacks because, you know, this like most comic books is released in single issue form at the comic book store, but a much larger audience ends up reading it in the collected volumes. So like for today, we're going to talk about the first three chapters of Saga. Those were released as three individual issues originally, and then the first six issues get collected in volume one. So sometimes people call those trades graphic novels, even though that's not really a thing, but I'm not going to get all comic book guy on like what the official (laughs) names for things are. For this podcast, we'll be referring to the chapters one by one, because that's what Brian K. Vaughn calls them in the story. Um, And then the volumes of those chapters that are collected, which you can get from your local bookstore and is probably the easiest way to access this story. Yeah, definitely. Well, that that leads nicely into what we're going to do today and a little bit of housekeeping and the game plan for today's episode. So let's go over some things. First and foremost, we want to make it clear that these read-along episodes where we dive into the pages and panels of this story, one chapter at a time, are going to be spoiler-free. The idea is that you, whether you're a new Saga reader who is picking up the book for the first time, or even if you're a returning Saga fan, will be reading along with us and we will make sure that your reading journey is spoiler-free and safe if it's your first time. And if you are revisiting the story, we will, of course, be diving into all of the tiny little details 
in all 54 of these incredible issues that are currently out. And of course, newer issues as they start to come out in 2022, we will be diving in deep and picking apart all the tiny details that you might have missed, even if you are a longtime Saga fan. So that's sort of the gist of what these episodes are for and who they're for. And of course, another reminder, totally spoiler free. Which is really hard. I read through <laughs> this whole series, I think for the fourth time in the lead up to this podcast. Yeah. And there's just so much good stuff. The cliffhangers at the end of every chapter are so good. I, I, I cannot wait for, for folks, if this is your first time reading it, to enjoy it. And it's an amazing story in that even myself having like gone back into it for the fourth time, there's new stuff that you notice oh, yeah. as you go through the pages and the story. And you're just like these little details, these little like they're not even Easter eggs. There's just layers there. And it's amazing. So <laughs> yeah, we also just to let you all know, as you're experiencing this with us, we love to hear from you. Yes. Whether you notice something new on a reread or something that you're just like, what the fuck is that on your first read? So send us an email, hazelstorypodcast at gmail.com hazelstorypodcast at gmail.com. There's two S's in a row there. And also any ideas for, you know, additional episodes. As we get further into the story, there are specific themes or characters or just whatever that you want us to talk about. Let us know. We can't wait to hear from you. Definitely. Okay, so the game plan for today's episode, we're going to start off with a summary of each of the chapters, and then we'll jump into a couple of larger thematic takeaways that we want to discuss. And finally, we will wrap up with our favorite panels and our favorite quotes from today's reading. So let's get into it. Just really from the gate in the first page of the first panel of this story, you're thrown directly into it. Yeah. And just as a side note, the first chapter of this story is huge. It's literally huge. It's double-sized. <laughs> it was published at 44 pages, which comic books are usually 22 pages without ads. This was double-sized. So they knew that Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples were going to go big on this book, and they just let him have at it. Yeah. So there's a lot that happens in this first chapter. Strap in. Here we go. That's right. So in our opening scene, we meet for the first time the weird, dysfunctional, and very unlikely family that's at the center of this story, Alana Marco and their daughter, who is coming into the world right now as we speak. We get an iconic line of narration as the first words of our story, quote, this is how an idea becomes real. And then we're greeted by Alana in the middle of giving birth, and she says just this incredible sort of tone setting first piece of dialogue that we get in this story. Quote, am I shitting? It feels like I'm <laughs> shitting. <laughs> which is so good and touches on this thing that I love so much about this story, which is uh, the the sort of themes of parenting and the realities of, of childbirth and just like baby stuff. Yeah. And yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's it's this amazing experience. And so we get you know, that as like a first shot across the bow that you're like, ah, what's happening? Right. And then you get the more context that, you know, so Alana and Marco are in what maybe is like a mechanic shop or a garage yeah. and the baby is born and then Marco cries. And then there's this like bizarro thing where like he all of a sudden in this like comic moment starts chewing on the umbilical cord. Yeah. And Alana's like, what are you doing, dude? And he's like, <laughs> oh, we get some very good context that Marco has taken a vow against violence. He says, quote, I made a vow, Alana. I'm a father now, not a soldier. And my blade is never again leaving its scabbard, which is like some classic fantasy stuff, right? Like yeah. he's done some bad shit. He doesn't want to do violence anymore to the extent that he literally won't use a knife to cut his daughter's umbilical cord. Right. That's dedication. Props to him, as far as I'm concerned. Fight down on that umb umbilical cord, my guy. It's funny, too, because he has to kind of chew on it, because it's like, it's, it's <laughs> thicker than so you think gross. it is. It's like, that's very, very, again, accurate detail to childbirth. Right, um, right. As, a, as an aside, I, so I have a child, she is four, and- She's very cute. Yeah, she's very cute. I've been through a lot of these things, and they all resonate so much differently with me on this yeah. fourth rereading of the story than they did the first time <laughs> I read through it, when I did not yet have a small child. How, how was biting down on the umbilical cord for you? Was it- <laughs> Was it chewy or? I did not bite the umbilical cord. Um, I did oh, you, cut it. So you yes. haven't taken a vow against No, violence. no vow. You're just, very pro-violence. Just some like surgical shears got used in the delivery room for our daughter. <laughs> got it. Got it. The daughter is born. The, Alana and Marco start arguing about what the, the daughter's name is going to be. They never do settle on a name. Right. And then all of a sudden there's this like banging on the outside of the door and you're like, ah, first like big what the hell is happening yes it cuts to the outside of the garage door and there's 
no context, no explanation, a giant TV-headed robot <laughs> who refers to himself as Baron Robot the 23rd, yep. and you're like, okay, sure, go in with it. Mm-hmm. And then there's some soldiers with wings <laughs> and rifles. And if that isn't enough, then out of the middle of nowhere come some other soldiers who are looking for Marco, but they're speaking this language that appears without translation, and the text is blue, so you're like, uh, I don't know what the hell that is. Right. And then the soldiers all yell at each other, and with the couple and their newborn baby caught right in the middle and it seems like everybody's gonna die and then there's like blaster fire and spells flying back and forth and then the dust settles and our heroes miraculously survive uh everybody else is dead including the grease monkey whose garage they were in that's an actual monkey and <laughs> on yet another sign that this book is just going to be weird and also very funny yeah and the monkey gives marco a map with his dying breath to end our very first scene all right Very first scene, folks. Like we said, strap in. (laughs) Now, in the next scene, we zoom way out into space, and we get some more of that sort of handwriting, scribbly narration from our narrator. And we get some exposition, basically, that sets the backdrop for this entire story. We learn that Marco and Alana were on the planet of Cleve, and that's where their daughter was born. That's where the first scene took place. And the war that's taking place across this entire galaxy is between the planet of Landfall and its moon, Wreath. And the wars don't actually take place on either the moon or the planet itself. The war has now sort of exploded and expanded across the galaxy and has fought through all of these proxy conflicts on other planets and with other races and beings across the known universe. It is a galactic war on a galactic scale. Right. And so you get that little bit of context and then are immediately thrown into another scene where you get another TV headed humanoid <laughs> robot thing yeah, uh, uh-huh. that we learn is called Prince Robot the Fourth, who is in the middle of, uh, I guess, some much needed R&R about returning <laughs> from combat. This is more of that just like yeah. we're going all in on this book because you get a full page of naked TV headed humanoid robot sex, Yes, which it's funny. I, I found an interview Brian K. Vaughn did in the lead up to this book. And he said that they were quote, really going to earn that M rating on this book, which <laughs> yep. They did it. Uh, full on just sex in like page eight or whatever <laughs> going in. Yeah. Unfortunately, our guy, Prince Robot the fourth gets interrupted, I guess is a polite way to say that his TV face flashes to a basically bloody scene from one of the battles he recently took part in. And this PTSD flashback sort of interrupts this (laughs) moment that he's having with this TV woman and awkward apologies ensue. And before they can kind of get back to business, an alligator butler arrives at the door with a message for the prince informing him that someone is here to talk to him. Right. And it's then the person who comes in is somebody with wings. So we're like, oh, that means that they're from that faction, I guess, because it's the wings and the horns of the two side of this war. Right. And he seems like he's a spy or something. So you're like, okay, so the wings and the robot headed guys are on the same side. And this spy wings guy is here to tell him about Marco and Alana and that he's been given this assignment by the king, then he needs to track them down and kill them because otherwise it could mess up their whole war if people found out that somebody from Landfall and somebody from Wreath could fall in love and have a baby would mess up everything. So now this guy who's just gotten back from combat gets sent back out to go kill our heroes. And this scene ends with some pretty heavy foreshadowing from our narrator. Quote, from my very first day, I was pursued by men. All of them tried to hurt me, but only one managed to break my heart. And then you flip the page and the narration continues. Sorry, getting ahead of myself. It's so good. And it's like, at this point, you understand the narration is coming from the baby that you've just seen born. So you're like, oh, there's another layer to this story that like, correct. this is a child telling their own story of their life, basically from the beginning, which is such an amazing narrative device and like keeps the whole thing super, super Like, I don't know, it just adds layers onto it that I love all the way through. Yeah, yeah. And it presents opportunities for foreshadowing like this, right? Now I'm desperate to know who's going to break her heart. Like, it it, it builds these incredible moments into the story early on. Totally. So we leave Prince Robot, and then it cuts back to Cleve with Marco and Alana, and they're like down in the sewers following this map to try and get away. Uh, Alana realizes that the map has... uh, 
something called a rocket ship forest, whatever that is on it, <laughs> and that if they can get to it, maybe that can help them get off world. And Marco says he doesn't want to risk it because they have a family to think about. And then uh, Alana snaps back at him with this response where she says, but we have a family to think about now is the rallying cry of losers. My old man threw his life away working a job he hated so that he could, quote, take care of his family. So you get some great character development from Alana there. Yeah. She says that she wants to show her little girl the universe and Marco just can't say no to her. So they head off to try and find a rocket ship forest, I guess. That's right. I love that little bit of characterization. I love how much we learn about Alana and Marco just in this small scene. Totally. Moving on, we are then whisked away to some other planet and introduced to <laughs> one of my favorite characters in this story, the Will and his pet lying cat who are on this planet to meet a client. And we learn that the Will is a freelancer, which in this universe is the term for hired assassins, basically. Totally. And after a test of the Will's skill that involves killing this giant fire-breathing monster with a bag that is very conveniently labeled for us, the reader, gunpowder. <laughs> it's, like it's like a Warner Brothers cartoon or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. It's great. It's like this right. little nod. There's all these little nods to like other kinds of pop culture throughout this book. And like him having a bag that says gunpowder on it is just perfect. It's so funny. So after dispatching this fire-breathing monster, he meets a woman with a unicorn horn named Fess. And she is here to hire him to do a job. And as many of us could probably guess by now, the job he's been given is to track down and kill Marco and Alana. So now we're starting to understand the story that's unfolding, this family that's going to be hunted down by two sides of a war the larger picture it's presenting itself. Right, because she's got a unicorn horn, so we can be assume that, oh, she's on the horn side of this wings versus horn right. battle, which is like, I love how there's all these little hints to which sides people are on without the sort of grand exposition that sometimes you get in sci-fi and fantasy. Yeah. We're like, oh, yeah. I get it. She's on that side. And there's also another little amazing moment where you learn that the Will's pet lion cat is called that because they're a living lie detector. Vez, she tries to give the Will some bullshit reason why the, uh, Alana and Marco need to be hunted down. And Lion Cat says the only word that apparently Lion Cat can say, which is lying, which is how I always read it in my head. <laughs> um, so the cat calls out the bullshit. Then uh, Vez lets the Will know that he's not the only freelancer that's been hired. So it's kind of a race against time to see who gets there first. Everybody loves a bounty hunter plot. Yeah. Like who can't wait for like bounty hunters to fight each other to try and take somebody down. Right. Ah, uh, I love it. Lion cat is so good. You have two cats. Are they lion cats? <laughs> no, I mean, they're lion cats in that they like to lie around, but that's about <laughs> it. Yeah, that tracks, that tracks. All right, we head back to Cleve in the next and final scene of this opening chapter. And we find ourselves back with Marco and Alana still searching for this mythical rocket ship forest that may or may not exist. At this point, they're kind of lost. They're very tired. And they come across this huge battlefield. And this is the first time in the story where we sort of get a sense of scale for this conflict. It's a massive battle taking place on this massive field in front of them. And at this point, Alana finds herself pretty discouraged. She walks away tired and frustrated with this war, with everything that's happened. She's got a newborn in her arms. It's a tough place to find themselves in. And Marco does his best to reassure her while also, and this is so sneaky of him, also trying to name their daughter Hope. <laughs> I loved this little bit, bit right here. No, I love it. It shows that like Marco is kind of a softy. Alana is kind of like more cynical. She's like, there's no way we're naming our daughter Hope. Yeah. Is that hokey nonsense? <laughs> yes. Uh, but she's like, oh, I do like something with an H. So that gives you some hint of what the name is eventually going to be that we still don't know, but coming soon enough. Yeah. And then at the very end of this first double-sized huge chapter, the two lovebirds share a kiss and then the narrator breaks back in with more of this like squiggly lined narration that we now understand is from the perspective of the child that they're holding. And it says, I started out as an idea, but I ended up 
something more. Not much more, to be honest. It's not like I grew up to be some great war hero or any sort of all-important savior. But thanks to these two, at least, I get to grow old. Not everybody does. Oh, my God. And it's just like, like this is me reading this book in 2012, like just after it's come out. And I'm like, <laughs> is this for real? Like, are these, are these, yeah. uh, like, are they for real with this stuff? Because it's like, it, it treads that line so carefully between like epic and grandiose, but while also being relatable. I just love it. Like first chapter, I was hooked. I knew I would read every issue of this that came out no matter what. Yeah. I think it also treads this line so perfectly of cheesy and heartfelt, right? Mm -hmm. This final line of, at least I get to grow old because of these two, not everybody does. If that was mishandled and not written and drawn by Brian and Fiona in this story in this way, that line could easily come off as groan worthy, right? That could be too cheesy. It could all be so cringe, but they never get anywhere near anything feeling cringy at all. Yeah. And I think it's because you can feel how much they both have love for this story and how personal it is. And right. All right. So we get this like moment, but of course, like any great space opera, we got to go back to space. So at the beginning of chapter two, we get back to the will, chilling on his spaceship, mm -hmm. calls up his agent, who <laughs> then, again, because this is the world that we're in, is a seahorse, uh, but in a suit at a desk on a beach on some kind of ocean planet. Right. Because what has been established pretty well now from Fiona Staples' artwork is that like literally anything they can think of is going to happen, and it's just so great. Like At this point, you're just like, oh yeah, sure, whatever, fine, yeah, seahorse agent, I'm in for it. <laughs> right. In a suit on an inexplicable beach. Love of it. Well, the seahorse agent lets the will know that he's not the only freelancer that's been hired to take out Alana and Marco. The will, of course, already learned this from Vez in the previous chapter. So we already knew this. What he didn't know is that one of the other freelancers that's been hired to take out Alana and Marco is someone called the Stock. And the will kind of freaks out when he learns this. He basically is like, okay, I'm done with this bullshit. I'm just going to max out this black Amex card that Vez gave me for this job on whatever I want to. The stock is going to beat me to this. I'm out. Totally. And you get also a hint that this book is going to keep returning to those adult themes because he said he's going to max out his expenses card at somewhere called Sextillion, which <laughs> we can only assume is like some sort of intergalactic bordello, you know, because sure, why not? Every story needs a good bordello. <laughs> right. So he heads off to Sextillion, no longer chasing after Marco and Alana, and we learn that someone named the Stock is after them, and the Stock is deadly enough that the Will is like, I'm out of here. Totally. So the stakes just keep getting raised. Then we head back to Cleve, and we're back with Alana and Marco and their tiny baby. The narrator lets us know they've been alive and have kept it together for like 72 hours, although they've been up apparently for all 72 of those hours, which is both yikes, terrifying and exhausting, but also kind of normal for the first three days after you have an, an infant. <laughs> they also, after all of that hype about what the baby's name is going to be, we find out that during those three days, they've named the baby and her name is Hazel, which is funny that like there were stakes raised and they were like, oh God, what are we going to name her? And then you just find out basically it happened off screen, which cool, right. wonderful name, baby Hazel it is. Yeah. Love it. Now we know the narrator's name. And now you guys know why this podcast is called Hazel's Story. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we sort of spoiled it a little in the name, but there you go. Right. So they unfortunately in this moment find themselves trapped in these sentient vines in this forest. And in order to get out, Marco needs to cast a spell. And for the first time in this story, we learned that there's magic in this story. We also learn how that magic is cast. And it turns out that Marco needs Alana to confide a secret in him, a secret that he doesn't know yet, in order to cast the magic that will help them escape these sentient vines. Right, which is cool because then it sets up that like, oh, you can't just do magic. It's like there's a casting cost basically, right? Yeah. Like you need some sort of intangible thing or something hard to get in order to make these spells work. And for this one, he needs a secret. And Alana tries to give him some secret about something banal, but Marco's like, no, 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 that's not a secret. You need a real secret. And so she confides <laughs> that she enjoys the taste of her own breast milk. And with the power of that admission, Marco says a magic word in the blue language and all three are free of the vines and that's it. So after this breast milk revelation moment, our little family 
falls asleep. I mean, they've been up for three days, everyone's exhausted, and they can't help but fall asleep in this creepy, creepy forest. And following that, we cut to a scene of Prince Robot the Fourth having just arrived on Cleve. So we're sort of getting this convergence of some of our characters on Cleve. And he's greeted by a young Landfallian soldier. And the soldier basically reveals to him in this little conversation that from what they know, Marco has kidnapped Alana. And when Prince Robot tries to get the soldier to tell him more about what she knows about Alana, did you talk to her? Did you know her at all? We learned that Alana was really into reading romance novels. Sure. There's a lot of boredom in being a soldier. And so what do you do? You read what you have around, I, I guess. I right. Something tells me that this will be important later on. Yeah. Alana's love of romance novels. I think so. So then the scene changes happen faster and faster now. We cut back to the woods. So baby Hazel cries and wakes up Alana and Marco. And they realize that they're not alone in the forest. So at first you're like, oh shit, is it these like, there were like these red-eyed ghosties that were like in the background when they fell asleep uh, in the last scene, but instead, right. they meet the aforementioned the stock. Who <laughs> I struggled to find a way to describe this, yeah. other than just looking at the panel. But she's sort of a topless but armless, eight-eyed spider lady, like very mm-hmm, mm-hmm. beautiful, but also like incredibly terrifying. And Marco doesn't understand when she introduces herself as the stalk that the the in front of her name means she's a freelancer slash assassin. So we learn that, that all the freelancers have the in front of their name. Right. Alana does understand this. And so she starts to freak out. But before she can, the stalk shoots, I don't know, something out of her mouth, a stinger, (laughs) a tongue. Who knows? This is the universe of Fiona Staples. So we just roll with it. And it shoots out of her mouth and stabs Marco through the shoulder. Yeah, I don't know much about spiders, but pointy knife tongues, I don't think are a a feature that many spiders have. Look, anything goes here. It's literally (laughs) if Fiona and Brian K. Vaughn can think of it, it just appears on the page. Right, right. Alligator butler, folks. (laughs) Now, Alana at this point pulls out the heartbreaker gun, the one that she got in the last chapter from the garage that they were in. And the stock uh, laughs in her face. The stock is like, that stun gun is not going to hurt me. What are you going to do with that little pea shooter? And at this point, the stock is holding like (laughs) no less than four weapons, at least in her eight arms, like a shotgun and a hatchet. Right. She pulls back (laughs) her cloak to reveal that like, even though the top half of her is a human torso, the bottom half is like giant spider. So she's got eight spider legs. And yeah, there's like a a battle axe and a shotgun, just like all kinds of manner of (laughs) deadly implements. Right. So Alana is clearly outgunned in this moment. And so she pulls a really desperate move that honestly had me holding my breath. She turns and points the gun to Hazel's head and tells the stock that she'd rather shoot her own daughter than let her daughter fall into the wrong hands to let the stock take her daughter. And before this tense scene can truly play out in whatever horrible way it would have played out, the horrors, the aforementioned horrors that we saw in the previous couple of panels arrive and they spook the stock enough to where the stock is like, I'm out of here. You deal with the horrors. I'll come back and figure out what to do with your bodies. And she kind of books it. Well, because first she just hears like the spooky, like ghostiness. And she's like heard of these horrors and like how terrifying they are. I think she even says like, I once saw one rip a man's spine out through his urethra, through his (laughs) urethra. At which point you're like, yeah, no, that would scare the shit out of me too. I'm scared just reading those words. Jesus. It's clear that the horrors are nothing to be messed with. And of course, this chapter ends on a cliffhanger before we mess with those horrors because- Our final panel is a group of pink ethereal ghost-like beings who all happen to be younger. They're all like seemingly preteen to teenage kids. And the one in front, who is maybe the leader of the group, says to Alana, quote, looks like you could use a hand. And that's the cliffhanger that chapter two ends on. Which, again, I read these month to month (laughs) as they came out. So imagine like it ending like that and having to wait a whole nother month before the next chapter came out. It was truly, you were like, but what? (laughs) It's something that this story does so well is that it pulls you from each of these different 
potential calamities. And then it's like, no, wait, that wasn't actually dangerous, but this other thing might be. Yeah, exactly. And it's just this whiplash, right? The horrors who we think are scary ghost monster creatures and everybody has told us they are on this final page turn out to be teenage ghosts. And we don't get an explanation until you wait a month and chapter three then picks up right where we left off with that cliffhanger. We then learn that these pink ghost teens are called horrors. These are the quote unquote horrors that everyone is so afraid of. But what they actually are, are just the locals of Cleve who have died in one conflict or another, either directly or indirectly in this galactic spanning war between Landfall and Wreath. And these kids are victims of that conflict. Yeah, they're basically, they're the collateral damage of this war that has killed all of the local residents of this planet as these two warring factions fight across it. Yeah. But the planet has some weird like mystical magic to it where if a local dies, then they become like a pink specter that can like get revenge. And But the only way they can get revenge is by projecting these like horrible, horrible images into the minds of the soldiers, which is why everybody thinks they're so horrible. But really, they can't touch anything. They're not real. They're just ghosts. The, the urethras and the spines are fake, <laughs> thankfully. Correct. Just visions. Yes. Horrible, horrible visions. <laughs> now, the situation we find ourselves in is not a good one. Marco is on the ground, bleeding out from his mortal wound. And the snarky teenager, who is the ghost that sticks around, the rest sort of leave. But the snarky teenager that sticks around to talk to Alana offers help. Marco can cast a spell. That will heal him, but he needs snow to cast it. Again, he needs some sort of offering to use his magic. And the teen girl offers to take them to a place where they can get the snow, but only if Alana allows her to soul bond with baby Hazel. Sure. Which at the moment, Alana does not agree to. I mean, you got a new baby. (laughs) Some ghost that you didn't know ghosts were real, maybe, or maybe you didn't know ghosts were real. Who knows in this world? It says, I want to soul bond with your daughter. Yeah. Because the ghost wants off the planet. And the only way you can get off Cleave is if you soul bond to a being who was born on the planet. So hence baby Hazel. Right. And then together they could all leave, which is like classic. Okay. We're picking up like other travelers for this epic journey narrative that we're about to go on. We found out, all right, uh, if if she goes along with this, this is going to be another member of our intrepid crew or whatever. Right, right. But in the moment, I would say two thumbs up, great parenting from Alana. Don't just <laughs> yes. let the ghost soul bond to your baby. <laughs> totally. Yes, caution. Her, her skepticism is well-founded. Totally. <laughs> now, in the next scene, we cut back to Prince Robot, our guy, who's in this very sort of Guantanamo-looking prisoner camp. And he is basically here to interrogate one of the prisoners, one of the horned prisoners, about Alana and Marco. He's trying to get intel. And during this interrogation, this horned prisoner brings up one of the battles that Prince Robot fought in. And honestly, it kind of antagonizes Prince Robot, right? He pushes all the right buttons here, and Prince Robot loses his shit. And pushes the prisoner up against the wall and starts beating the hell out of him. And here we get yet another example of clearly the trauma, the trauma from combat, from this war, from the horrors that he's seen on the battlefield that the prince is carrying around with him. Well, and also you get a little hint of the way that these robots show emotion is by not being able to control the imagery that comes up on their TV screen heads. So both times that he's had a little bit of a freak out, you've had what basically is like a flashback. But instead of like a person having a flashback and the images in their head for these robots with TV screens as faces, you actually get the visual, which uh, is cool. And also an interesting narrative device where you can literally see what a character is thinking. We also learn in this scene, we get a quick peek actually of one of the romance novels that Alana has been reading. And I just want to call it out because it, it sounds like such a good story. And, uh, if there's ever a saga spinoff, give me this tale. It's called a nighttime smoke by D Oswald heist. It sounds saucy. The cover looks saucy. And it's clearly one of those like, uh, romance novels you like buy at a gas station. (laughs) Grocery store, like classic grocery checkout, (laughs) fodder, like Fabio-esque shirtless dude on the cover. Right, right. Very much like one of those moments where you're like, wait, are we in a fantastical like galaxy far, far away? Or is this just the universe that we live in, but like very, very, very weird? (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. So then uh, it cuts away from Prince Robot 
whose hand also turns into a cannon in the very last shot from that scene. So you learn that, oh, the robots can turn their hands into guns. Cool. Quick cut back to Alana, Marco, and Hazel and the ghost girl, who we learn is named Isabel. So Hazel starts crying and Isabel lets Alana know that she's burping her wrong, which totally fair. She's only been a mom for three days and nobody's teaching her how to burp a baby. So she wouldn't know. Right. Uh, And Isabel says that she was the oldest of seven and could be a good babysitter. So maybe Alana should let Isabel take a turn with taking care of Hazel. Right. Also, she just throws out there that uh, there's a little shortcut they can take through this uh, terrifying ice cave. (laughs) And Alana is reticent, but also Marco is dying. So Alana agrees. Right, right. Desperate times call for desperate measures. After that scene, we're back with the Will, and he's enjoying himself a nice bachelor's dinner, a bowl of cereal while he's shirtless. Iconic. (laughs) We've all been there. (laughs) Totally. And he gets a call from the stock, who uh, is having a less great time than he is, because she is running away from these giant wild boars on Cleve who are chasing after her. And she basically rings him up and asks if he wants to team up. She's asking for backup here. This Alana Marco job is tougher than she thought. And the will basically tells her to fuck off. He never wants to see or work with her ever again. And we get hints that there may have been some sort of romantic entanglements that the will perhaps took more seriously than the stock did. And after being told to fuck off, she kind of flips out at him over the phone and uh, then hangs up. And that's it. So we leave the will arriving at Sextillion, which looks like a sort of Las Vegas style space bordello, big neon lights. Yeah. Cuts back to Isabel, who's leading our family, while Alana is carrying Marco this whole time, which as I watch these pages, like Incredible. I try to, yeah, I try to imagine my wife carrying me literally anywhere, which we've actually talked about before. <laughs> and she says, if it ever comes to it, where like I'm unconscious and she has to carry me somewhere, she'll do her best to drag me. But if it doesn't work out, she's grabbing the baby and running for it, which yeah, fair, fair play. But Alana is carrying Marco through these tunnels that are apparently called hopscotch tunnels, which is a term thrown out there that we will never hear about again, which there's a lot of in this book. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. And Alana finally agrees, as Isabel asks again, to let Isabel bond with Hazel and asks in this line that is just truly brilliant, if the soul bonding will hurt. Yeah. To which Isabel replies, only on the day it ends. Oof. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Alrighty, let's wrap up chapter three and today's reading. In this final scene, we're still with Alana, Hazel, Isabel, and Marco. They jump on a boat to get to that snow that Marco needs to cast that spell. And Marco wakes up in a bit of a sort of fever dream. Obviously, he's not doing great right now. He's bleeding out as we speak. And he says, quote, please tell my bride that I loved her, which everyone kind of finds a bit confusing. But then Marco continues and says, quote, please tell Gwendolyn I loved her so much. And we end this chapter on a full page spread of Alana holding Hazel, Isabel, shocked face in the background, and the words, who the fuck is Gwendolyn? (laughs) Just amazing. Amazing. Like we went from space epic to soap opera so fast. And I love it. So fast. Yeah. Okay. So that was a lot. Literally an epic amount of story to go over. I feel a little like Alana and Marco after three days in the jungle with an infant and no sleep. (laughs) So we're going to take a quick break here. But when we come back, we'll each reveal our favorite pages of art from these chapters, plus big takeaways from the series so far. Welcome back, folks. Let's get into our two key takeaways from today's reading. So our first takeaway from these first introductory three chapters of this story is that this story won't pull its punches. And we've sort of talked about this already in the summaries. We've joked a bit about some of the gruesome and hilarious lines of dialogue that we get all throughout these first three chapters. That's not going to change That is the tone of this story. I mean, the entire journey begins with Alana saying, am I shitting? It feels like I'm shitting. (laughs) And that should explain to any reader what kind of story they're diving into. 
in that first chapter alone, we not only witness a birth, but we see robot sex, we see multiple beheadings, and we watch a fire-breathing monster's head get blown off by explosive gunpowder. That's just the first chapter. And later, of course, we get the topless killer spider lady and mutilated ghost children. This book will be weird, and it will not pull any of its punches. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be emotional, right? We talked about some of those lines of dialogue that are already so heavy and could come off as cheesy, but are instead heartfelt and powerful. Totally. And and that's one of those things that the book gets to do because it's a creator-owned book, right? This, this comic started during a, a big move, even for a big comics publisher like Image, to give creators more control over their books, both they're creator-owned in that the creators own the rights to the characters, but also that the creators work at their own pace and work at their own schedule. So, yeah. you know, if the story doesn't come together in exactly a month's time, then that's fine, which, of course, we have been held hostage by for three and a half years since the last issue of this story came out. It has been literally three and a half years. But one of the things that that lets these creators do is really tell the stories they want to tell without worrying that somebody from the publishing company is going to be like, oh, this is too weird or, oh, that's too violent. Like, we're not going to get any of that. We're just going to get the full unadulterated vision of what Brian K. Vaughan and Fiona Staples have in store. And and that unadulterated vision extends to a lot of the writing and dialogue as well. In addition to some of the visuals that we're seeing, the writing feels just so blunt and so very, very real. One of my favorite lines in today's reading was Hazel's narration, where she's giving us that exposition of the landfall versus wreath conflict and how the proxy wars have spread across the galaxy. And she says, quote, some of the locals never stopped thinking about the battles being waged in their names on distant soil. Most didn't really give a shit, end quote. <laughs> right, it's like so real. That's about as real as it gets. Right, that's the, one of the most interesting things that's established right off the bat about this galaxy-spanning war is it's almost like nobody really knows why they're fighting or what the war is about. It's just yeah. always existed, and it's become almost like just a through line through all of the galaxy society. Everyone hates it, nobody knows why they're doing it, but it's just how things have always been done. Exactly. And I think the dialogue speaks to this idea as well. Everyone is affected by this war and people talk in like very normal, real people ways. Like F-bombs are being dropped left and right in dangerous situations, as they would be. And I think a lot of sci-fi fantasy stories often sort of fail to capture just like the very normal, messy way that people interact, characters interact. And I think Saga just does that so, so, so well. Yeah, these reactions are like what you or I might do or feel when thrown into these totally absurd situations, but they're also not totally absurd in the universe that they live in, right? Because they like they're aware that there is magic and there is epic space battles, and that yeah, you know, in those epic space battles, there's giant sized tortoise tanks or whatever it was in that one battle scene. <laughs> right. So like they're reacting to the stress like the normal amount of stress reaction that we might have. Now to wrap up this sort of first takeaway about how this story is not going to pull its punches and y'all better strap in the conflict at the center of this universe landfall versus wreath this is a very real war that for untold generations has taken a very real toll on the people in this galaxy and every single character we meet in this story has been affected by it the one character we meet thus far that is so very clearly affected by it is Prince Robot IV. He's sort of the clearest example yet. The poor guy is just losing his cool at the mere mention of battles where he lost friends. He's flashing back to these horrible things he saw on the battlefield. And this story is not going to shy away from that. It is going to show us how a conflict like this can affect all types of people, no matter where they are in the galaxy. Or, or what station they hold within the society, right? Yeah. Like Prince Robot IV is presumably the son of the king of robot kingdom or something yeah i love the all the little like gaps that <laughs> normally in a story like this you know the character would pause for a page and a half of exposition but we just are left to fill in the gaps ourselves and be like right he's prince of something he was like off fighting at war because that was his princely duty but like he's also a prince and he wants to like just settle down and like with his princess and like pop out babies like he's supposed to but even he like at this royalty level is affected by combat trauma, which I think is very intentional to show that like this kind of trauma can affect literally anybody and it does affect literally everybody. Right. 
Right. You have your average foot soldiers like Marco and Alana, but then you have your royalty, Prince Robot IV, who are all affected by this war in their own ways. And a lot of that effect kind of comes down to the violence that's being perpetrated in the name of this war. Yeah. We see it in the very first scene. These two groups of warriors who take each other out in this bloody couple of panels, like people are getting shredded in half and this one character's head is just straight up cleanly chopped off and there's heads exploding and arms flying off. It's a bloody conflict. And this story, this comic is not going to be shy about showing that as well. Yeah, this is not Star Wars where like the stormtroopers get you know a little black spot on their stormtrooper yeah. uniform that shows them dead. Like this actually shows you what a laser blaster would do to a to a body and it's it shreds it. It destroys it. Even with the character of Isabel completely missing the bottom half of her body because it's blown off by a landmine. Like right. it's showing the sort of effects of very modern warfare or how magic would be adapted and sort of militarized with very modern warfare. So the people from Wreath have magic, but it's been turned into this like super intense weapon that has been brought into the war. So instead of being used for, you know, whatever other magical purposes you might want, it's just the same as the guns and other machines of war that the landfall troops seem to have. Yeah. Not not to keep ragging on Star Wars, but it's not the force. It's not the very sanitized, clean magical power. No. It is Ripping, ripping bodies to shreds is what this magical power is being used for. And we're going to see plenty of that. It's a lot. And it is going to be intense, which is yet another sort of, if you haven't already gotten this, this is not a book for, for children at all. Absolutely not. No. Do not let <laughs> no. anybody who is a child read this comic book for mature audiences only. Which I think is a good segue to my sort of second takeaway, yeah. which is that this is a comic book for adults insofar as that it is intense and violent with some sexual themes, but it also is built around a lot of intertwining characters like your typical, you know, prestige drama or maybe like a movie series or something like that who go through these like wild, crazy adventures. But those wild adventures and amazing technological moments and magic is all juxtaposed with these very, very boring, banal real life moments too. So you see Alana, Marco, and Hazel as the main characters we see this happening to, but also Prince Robot the Fourth, The Will, Isabel. You're getting all of these interweaving storylines. And it's cool how Brian K. Vaughan and Fiona Staples use the experiences to show us different parts of this universe. But they use both like shocking, bizarro, uh, fantastical scenarios as well as very mundane experiences. So like fighting monsters, casting spells, going through whatever hopscotch tunnels are. But then at the same time, you have these other like very private sort of personal real life moments like Alana breastfeeding her child or robo sexy time interrupted by an alligator butler. Right. That's super relatable. That's happened to all of us. Who hasn't gone to college and had an alligator butler interrupt them at the worst time? <laughs> Sock on the door, alligator butler. Sock on the door. Uh, but what's interesting is in addition to those like hilarious, absurd moments, you also get these very like normal moments like the Will sitting in his bachelor pad eating cereal alone with his cat or right. when the stock calls the Will in that scene, she's using a flip phone. It's just like there's these little pieces <laughs> of like normal life like earth human world intermixed and sort of wrapped inside of this fantastical world. Even the fact that like Alana reads romance novels and they look like the romance novels from our world brought to bear right. in this fantastical magical world. Or even just like Alana and Marco falling asleep holding their newborn. This is a complete world unfolding around us with high fantasy magic and intense sci-fi technology, but also just like very normal things that we all would recognize, which for me, I think is one of the reasons why this book has such wide appeal because it stays grounded to yeah. reality while also one last shout out for the alligator butler. Right. I mean, think about what you just said there. Grounded to reality is not a way you would describe a story in which I'm telling you about TV-headed robots and seahorse managers, right? Like, nothing about the visual screams, this is totally grounded in reality and will make any sort of sense. But the characters at the core of this story and many of the things you've described are what make it so relatable. We can all see ourselves in some aspect of the characters that we meet on this journey. Whether it's you're a parent and you totally get how that first week of parenting is brutal and you fall asleep anywhere and everywhere you can. Whether you are <laughs> a heartbroken bachelor re <laughs> eating cereal with your cat 
On your way to a space bordello. On your way to a space bordello. Extremely relatable to me. All of that is what, again, like you're saying, has made this story so impactful for so many people and for people, I think, who are not traditional comic book readers. Saga is something that I I would encourage even people who are not into comic books to read through because of the things you touched on, because I can guarantee every reader will find themselves in one of these characters and will quickly start to become attached to this cast. Yeah, it's it does the same thing that I think the MCU Marvel movies did very well with the characters is that they took them and made them fully formed, well-rounded people. And even though the characters in this story are not people, are people, it's unclear. Like they're, they're, <laughs> nobody is human, maybe. The will might be human, I don't know. It doesn't matter. What they're doing is that they're fully rounded beings with emotions and hopes and frailties and foibles and backstories and baggage and just all of those things that you can relate very well to. But they are also, much like the MCU, thrown into these totally off-the-wall scenarios that make their lives super interesting and you can't wait to see what happens next. I absolutely love this takeaway. I think this is something that our listeners should keep in mind as we continue through the rest of this story, that juxtaposition. Yes, there are fantastical, extremely off-the-wall things constantly happening, but at its core, there are very normal human emotional struggles for the characters. And I think that that's what makes this such an incredible story. It's so grounded in that way. A story about alligator butlers is very <laughs> grounded, is what we're saying. Totally. Well, and, and a big part of that is the way that Fiona Staples draws these characters. Yes. It's hard to say that someone who has giant horns or like blue bat wings can be drawn photorealistically. (laughs) But the way that she illustrates these characters, they feel like they are like real and you can touch them and that you could like actually experience what they're experiencing. So one of the things we're going to do on every episode of the show is that each of us is going to talk about our favorite artwork, our favorite panel, our favorite page from the issues that we've read. I'll start off with, of course, I'm going to break form immediately in the very first version of this, is I'm not going to do a panel or a page. You are setting a dangerous precedent (laughs) for future episodes. (laughs) But I wanted to draw attention to the way that the panels on the first five pages of chapter one are structured, Mm -hmm. because it's another thing that makes this, I think, so, so relatable, is that these panels are composed like shots in a movie or a prestige TV show. Fiona Staples is using the techniques of film composition to give us a variety of visual angles on each one of these panels that then gives both emotion in the close-ups and context in the wide shots, which is, you know, basic film theory, right? Like you show feelings in your close-ups and you show information in your wide shots. So the first panel is this extreme close-up of Alana as she's asking if she's shitting. You can literally see the sweat flying off of her face. It's a full-page panel close-up of just her face. And then it cuts out wide to a shot of Marco with his head under her dress so he can be like, okay, this is where we are. Then you get a close-up of Marco's face showing his joy at the fact he's about to become a dad. Then you flip and get a reverse angle of that shot showing how mad Alana is as he's trying to be all like happy-dappy and she glares at him. Then you get a quick sequence of shots actually showing the birth that lead up to another beautiful close-up of baby Hazel in the foreground and Mark in the background crying, holding this super gross looking baby, which is very real. New babies are gross. (laughs) Babies, when they first come out, they're super gross. Uh, I'm not embarrassed to share that the first thing that my daughter did after she was born was to poop in my wife's hand immediately directly into her hand. Oh, wow. Immediately after being born. So real life, babies come out gross, covered in goo, and sometimes they poop. And then finally, we get this wordless sort of sequence of panels of Marco handing Hazel back to Alana, Hazel latching on to start breastfeeding immediately. It's interesting because this first sequence for this epic space opera is this very banal, very just like normal human or I guess any creature thing of the act of giving birth. We start this off with the most visually relatable visual sequence, and it's done in this way where it's basically like storyboards from a movie, which is a technique that... Fiona Staples will come back to, and it just is so incredibly effective for making the best use of the format and the medium. Yeah. And that's unique. Like, if you are a comic book reader, you know that comic panels can't just be translated one for one onto the screen. They wouldn't always make sense. A lot of 
action and movement, at least in American sort of Western comics, happens in between panels. And then we sort of cut to dialogue. And I love that you pointed this out, Alan, that at least this first scene and many of the panels and pages we will read throughout this story are drawn in this storyboarded way where we use this close-up, wide shot, close-up, wide shot to convey emotion, information, emotion, information. And it's interesting because the first place my brain goes is, well, if this is already drawn like a storyboard for a movie or a a prestige series, Uh why not just make it Uh into a storyboard for a prestige series? Hello, Netflix. Netflix. (laughs) Uh, One thing that's interesting, though, is when he's been asked about this, Brian K. Vaughan said that one of the things he was trying to do was making something that would purely work in the comics medium. He wanted to make something that was, quote, unadaptable. Mm. Whether that holds true, I don't know about that. But he did want it to be so weird and to take so much advantage of the fact that you can literally draw and show anything your mind can think of in a comic such that they could make it unadaptable for the screen or radio or whatever. Right. Meanwhile, to your point, Fiona Staples is over here like, I'm going to just storyboard this whole thing because I want that bag. I want that Netflix bag, you know? Totally. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So let me share my favorite panel from today's reading. I, unlike you, Alan, stuck to the rules and picked just a single panel. And this one kind of hit me like a pile of bricks. Uh, I talked earlier about that scene in the sewers. It's a very short scene where we learn a little bit about Alana's parents, specifically her father. And it ends with her telling Marco that she wants to, quote, show our girl the universe. And in response, we cut to this wide shot, again, sort of thinking cinematically here. It's a wide shot of Marco looking helpless. And Hazel's narration says, quote, he just couldn't say no to her. And uh, this panel ruined me because it just tells us so much in a single panel with one line of narration, what kind of relationship Marco and Alana have and how much love there truly is in this relationship. In this scene, we already got a sense of the types of parents that Alana and Marco will ostensibly turn out to be. And obviously, Marco seems to be the more risk-averse parent. From my experience, there's always that one parent who's super neurotic about everything and then the one who's uh, a little too chill about everything. And we know which categories these two fall in. What kills me specifically about this one wide shot panel of Marco is that look of helplessness on his face, that expression that he has, the way that Fiona drew that. And it's not because he's powerless to respond to Alana in this moment, but it's because he realizes that he doesn't want to and that he never will. He simply loves her so much that he will never not want to help her achieve her desires, particularly when it comes to their daughter, when it comes to Hazel. And I don't know, maybe I'm reading way too much into a single panel, but all of that subtext is there for me. And to me, just showing the relationship between these two characters in this way, without doing all of this exposition-heavy, lovey-dovey shit, is beautiful and so real. This is what real love looks and feels like. It's moments like this, where your partner says something to you, and you just shut up, because your love for them is stronger than your opposition to whatever they said. It's amazing how much Fiona must have known and thought about where these bits of narration from Hazel were going to go. Because it's like your eye scans the panel from left to right, and you get like the little flame, and then Marco's sad face, sad but stern, but like loving. And then on the right side of the panel, it just says, he just couldn't say no to her, which is, it's just, Uh, it's so good. It's great. Okay, last thing. In addition to our favorite panels, we also want to shout out the incredible writing. So we also want to share our favorite quotes from today's reading. So Alan, I'll let you kick it off. What was your favorite quote from today's chapters? Okay, so as as you can probably tell from all of the rest of this episode, I love the moments of realness about parenting in this story, and there will be many of them. Uh, Again, when I read this whole series for the first time. It was long before I was married or had a kid, and so it hit me a little differently. But uh, Brian K. Vaughan wrote this book shortly after his first child was born, and he's actually said that was part of what had him want to actually make this story real, because he'd been thinking about it apparently since he was a kid. Like, this is a childhood story he sort of thought up, and having his first child was like, oh, 
I get the power of parenting now. I want to make this. So the way he depicts parenthood feels so, so, so real. And this little bit of narration that uh, Hazel gets at the end of the scene where Alana and Marco fall asleep on each other in the woods uh, goes like this, quote, If there's an opposite of a honeymoon, it's the week after a couple's first child is born. No matter how hard they try, no matter how pure their intentions, everything will go wrong. And it's just so, every time that I have read that since, it just feels so right. Even just that little phrase, if there's an opposite of a honeymoon, it's the week after a couple's first child is born. Just such a brilliant turn of phrase. Like BKV (laughs) ends up, knows how to use some words. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm not a parent myself, but I can empathize with that. And yeah, that this line also stuck out to me as well. I immediately thought of you. I had a feeling you were going (laughs) to pick this line. Totally. Okay. So I know I was ragging on you for breaking the rules earlier, but I'm going to cheat and pick two lines of dialogue. But in my defense, they're both short and I think they go together. In the very first scene of this story, when Alana and Marco find themselves in the middle of this crossfire between these two groups of soldiers and they think they're going to die right? They don't see a way out of this situation. Alana says, quote, she needs a name. I don't want my child to die without a... And then she gets cut off because that's where the door explosion happens. And then later, while the magic and bullets are flying, Alana turns to Marco and says, quote, I loved you so much, end quote. And (laughs) both of these lines in the very first couple of pages already had me tearing up, just so gut-wrenching. And specifically, what got me was the past tense of the word loved. She doesn't say, I love you so much in those final moments where she is certain that she is going to die. She says, I loved you so much. She's already sort of accepting this fact that this is it. This is as far as their romance is going to go. They're all going to die here. And then the other quote where she's sort of protecting her newborn, who was born mere minutes ago, as the door explodes, and says she needs a name, I don't want my child to die without a name. Just the helplessness, like I can almost hear Alana's voice in my head in that scene, and just the helplessness pain in her voice, knowing that her newborn is maybe only going to be in this world for for a couple of minutes before this war rips them all apart again. It's just so heartbreaking. It's gut-wrenching. And those two lines just stuck with me. The I loved you so much killed me. Well, it also, I hadn't thought of this, but you bringing up these two lines of dialogue makes me think about, so the two things that happen in that very first scene are we witness the miracle of childbirth, right? Like a a life is created. Yes. But then you also see how aware everyone in this universe that we're now in is of how fleeting life can be, right? That at any point, because of this war that has spanned the whole galaxy, of which both of our main characters are soldiers, that like at any point anybody can be killed. Yeah. That like it establishes that as a baseline that like, oh, there is a finality and a brutality to this world and to everything that happens inside of it, which is not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, It is a cold, cold, dark world, but it is still full of these these like little bits of humanity. I keep saying humanity, even though our characters aren't human. I'm just going to (laughs) pretend they are. Uh, This little bit of humanity of I don't want my child to die without a name or like the idea of like having loved somebody, even though, you know, you're about to die. Uh, Gut wrenching stuff. Such great dialogue. I had a hard time picking these. I wanted I had like four or five other lines I wanted to pick here, but I kept coming back to these two in the very first scene in the opening scene. Great stuff. It's for me, too. I go back and forth between the like the funny lines, the zingers and then the like intense emotional sort of experiences, but then also the like sort of grandiose storytelling stuff. It's all there and it's all interwoven so yeah. incredibly well. Uh, sh- yeah, shouts to, I'm going to cheat one more time, one more line. Shouts to that incredible bit of dialogue from Alana where she tells Isabel, if you call me ma'am one more time, I'll figure out a way to kill you twice. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It's so good. Uh, incredible. Okay, this podcast has gone on way too long. We're clearly setting an incredible precedent. Buckle up, (laughs) folks. We did it, though, Alan. Episode one. We did it. Our opening three chapters of Saga. We are now on this journey. There's no backing out, dude. You're committed. I'm committed. We're in this. 
I'm I'm so excited. Uh, I'm excited to keep <laughs> reading. I'm excited for all of our listeners to keep reading. Just a note, make sure before the next episode that you've read through chapter six, aka through the rest of volume one, which is the first story arc in the story. And I promise you the story arc just keeps getting weirder and more fantastic. That's right. And we'll see you in the next episode where we will deep dive into chapters four, five, and six. All right, friends, two minds can sometimes improve the odds of a podcast survival, but there are no guarantees, as Hazel says. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> and be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network at loreparty.com. And you can also follow our network on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, podcasts are fragile things. But just like Alana, Marco, and Hazel, we'll all just keep on exploring and learning together.